All right. Good morning. Let's pray. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, you so love the world that you gave your only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of your love by your Holy Spirit, that we may delight in the inheritance that is ours as your sons and daughters and live to your, pra- to your praise and glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. We are going to pick up on question 183 on page 72. Question 183, page 72. So we're moving along through the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. The first petition being a hallowing of God's name, one that maybe we don't even often think of as a petition, uh, but nevertheless is something that we both ask of God and ask that God would realize in us that his name would be hallowed. Second, that God's kingdom would come. And then now third, the third petition. So 183, what is the third petition? The third petition is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So before kind of moving on to uh, the following questions, we'll try to kind of look at what is the divine will, what is God's will. I thought maybe it might be helpful just to pause for a minute and kind of take inventory on uh, what kind of, what are the maybe ideas or connotations um, that might be kind of informing this phrase, God's will, because it's a loaded one. Um, And as my favorite philosopher, Ludwig Wittgenstein, would say, the best way to kind of figure out what something means is often just to do an investigation of what we, how we use it in speech, called a grammatical investigation. Let's just think for a moment how people use this term, God's will. The first thing that comes to mind, because I'm teaching, I teach a history of Christian thought class, at Baylor, and we just um, were in medieval, the medieval period, and we were looking at the Crusades. And of course, the most famous cr- cry of the Crusaders, right? Deus volt, God wills it, right? Uh, clearly, one of the most kind of like abused uh, instances of uh, appealing to the will of God. But uh, nevertheless, I think talk about God's will is something that we've probably encountered all, you know, throughout our lives. And yet, it's kind of maybe remain a mystery in some ways what actually that is. So let me kind of like maybe just ask you, uh, when you hear this phrase, God's will, uh, what comes to mind? What like associations or where have you heard this kind of language before? Um, How have you kind of thought about it? God's will. Taylor, you look like you're on the verge of saying something. How, how have you encountered this before? Yeah. Yeah. Sense of like, when properly done, it's probably like, it's probably just 
You don't care about what I want. <laughs> yeah. It's like you, you may pray for something, but then you have this kind of like realization, well, God's going to do what he's going to do, so what does it even matter, you know, <laughs> that I'm praying? Maybe it's a kind of fatalistic, um, at, you know, kind of uh, association. Or maybe at best it's, yeah, thinking about Jesus in the garden, thy will be done of like really leaning into and trying to subordinate one's own desires to God's desires. Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, Alex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just kind of an arbitrary decision. Just God's going this way with history, you know. We may not, and you know, maybe it's associated with like we can never understand God's ways, right? Uh, God just has a mysterious way of working in the world, and that's God's will. And it may be irrational, but it's God's will. Who are we to kind of question it? Yeah. Well, what else? What about just like in kind of like uh, what to turn, you know, places where you maybe or instances of hearing this language of God's will in just kind of prayer or. Um, kind of uh, Christian discipleship. I mean, for me, I, I remember kind of like as a kid or as a teenager, just feeling like this great sense of burden of like, what is God's will for my life, right? And I can't figure it out, right? And it seems so hidden. It seems like, you know, if I don't figure this out, I'm going to waste my life. Like my, my, my life will be purposeless unless I can, you know, kind of, figure out what God's will is, and he doesn't seem to be kind of giving it to me. Maybe this is an association you have with God's will. You're endlessly trying to figure out um, what is this mysterious plan that God has for me, and why won't he tell me, right? Um, I think that's a common way of thinking about um, God's will as a mystery, um, something we have to kind of pry into the divine mind in order to kind of like force God's hand to show it to us or something like this. Any other any other ideas of places you've heard heard God's will? I mean, that's worse. Maybe you know it's uh, used to kind of like justify our uh, what we want to happen. You know, so maybe it's like this isn't the language used exactly, but it's basically the the same idea. Like um, you know, God told me to break up with you, right? I'm sorry. You know, I wish we could stay together, but this is God's will, right? And we have to end our relationship. Yeah, and who am I to contest that, right? It's God's will. Yeah. So Mm, yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. I think that is that is absolutely the case that like when confronted with someone's suffering there is a kind of like easy kind of pious answer that we sometimes, you know, uh, go toward, which is like, sorry, this is happening to you, but it's God's will. You can, and it's, it's meant, I think, as an encouragement, like this isn't, this actually isn't arbitrary or meaningless, but somehow God's working, 
you know, through this and has a purpose for it. But the way it's heard, right, in that moment is, well, why would it be God's will to afflict me with this awful suffering, right? Who is this God whose will involves so much terror, right? So, yeah, I think this is exactly exactly right. Again, there's a sense that the divine will is uh, deeply mysterious, right? Uh, unknowable almost, right? Maybe we can say God wills this, but why, right? Well, okay, so I think all this is helpful to keep in mind um, because the way that I think scripture and the catechism are going to talk about God's will is, is primarily not something on the one hand that is hidden but revealed, and on the other hand, it's not something that's like peculiar to me and my life, but it's actually a will for all of creation, uh, it's not to say that God doesn't have a plan for your life, but in the first instance, when we think about God's will, we want to think bigger, uh, and we want to think scripturally. So uh, I think this is we're going to find this in the next few questions. So question 184, what is God's will? God's will is to reconcile all things to himself in Jesus Christ and to establish his kingdom on the earth. His will is revealed in the whole of scripture and especially in Jesus Christ, whom I am called to serve and imitate with my whole life. Okay, so uh, just a couple of things to kind of point out in this. The first is um, this language of his will is revealed. Uh, I think this is helpful. It's not to say that God's will can be inexhaustively known by us, right? God is a mystery, right? We can never exhaust in our knowledge of God uh, anything of the, the divine character, especially his will. But nevertheless, God reveals his will. And in this sense, we've, we're thinking about will in terms of uh, God's desire, um, that which he is working out in, in history, in, in um, the world by his providence, right? Uh, his uh, decrees from all time that creation... Uh, would be ordered to its end, right? And what is that end? Reconciliation, right? The reconciling of all things to himself. Now, this is important. God's will is that all things be reconciled, right? Um, this is a key theme in Scripture, but one that's sometimes, I want to say, maybe neglected, especially especially by our more reformed brothers and sisters who, who often kind of get a sense of delight that God really, his will, his delight is to see some people uh, damned, right? Uh, right? God longs for the redemption and reconciliation of all creation, right? Um, this is the divine will, that all things be restored and renewed. And secondarily, God's will is realized in his kingdom, right? Um, We've talked about this kingdom of God language already, but God's will is realized through his reign, right? Through his rule on the earth, which first and foremost is um, through his church, right? The embodiment of the kingdom of God, but then also throughout the world by his spirit, right? Again, his will is revealed, I think this is important, in the whole of scripture and especially in Jesus Christ, and it's important to say that the entirety of God's will is revealed in Jesus Christ. So there isn't a hidden will of God that's inaccessible, right, to us. That's kind of like, 
you know, um, God kind of hides behind his back. God lays it all out on the table for us in Jesus. Uh, the language that Paul will use in his epistles, right? Uh, this is Paul, right? Uh, that in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwells, of divinity dwells, right? When we speak about Christ as the revelation of God, um, it's the entirety of God revealed, right? There's no hidden parts of God. It's all there. Now, that doesn't mean we can comprehend it all, right? Uh, Jesus's revelation is almost as blinding as it is revealing, right? Because of how, uh, how, how overwhelming it is. But there's nothing that's, uh, that belongs of God that is not revealed in Jesus, in other words, right? Including the divine will. It's all laid out in Jesus, in his ministry, in his teaching, and most importantly, in his death and resurrection, right? And this will, this will come up when we look at how we seek God's will, but if that's the case, if God's will is kind of revealed in Jesus Christ, um, then for us to follow or keep or align ourselves to the divine will is always going to be Christological. It's always going to be about us being joined to Jesus, following Jesus, serving and imitating Jesus. So in the first case, we'll kind of get to this in a minute, to know and do God's will is simply to imitate Jesus, Right? He is the embodiment, the revelation of God's will. Okay, 185, what do you pray for as you seek God's will? I pray for God to break the dominion of the world, the flesh, and the devil, to establish justice and thwart the plans of the wicked, to strengthen and direct his church, and to extend the kingdom of his grace. All right, so uh, God's will is... Um, concerned with, with many things, but uh, here especially, the realization of his justice and righteousness, which entails first a negation of things in this world that are opposed to the justice of God. The kind of classical formulation here is the world, the flesh, and the devil. This comes from the baptismal liturgy, right? You renounce uh, in being baptized and renewing your baptismal vows, you renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. These being, you need to understand, I think, um, the world as uh, in the kind of, we might say, the, um, uh, the kind of Johannine sense as like the Gospel of John, letters of John use this term. Not creation, but it's fallenness, right? God's world is good, we need not renounce God's creation, but it's fallen or twistedness, right? That's what we mean by the, the world, right? Um, it's, it's creation's distortion. So, right? So not, uh, we're, we're not intending, right, a kind of escape from God's creation, but it's restoration. Yeah. 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 Yeah, actually, I think this comes from uh, this passage in Romans. Actually, it's cited here. Romans 8 is where this language comes from. So I think it's probably worth reading because what Paul has in mind here is not just um, human creatures, but all of creation. So, this is in Romans 8, 
verses 28 through 30. Actually, this is not the passage I had in mind. It's, else, it's a little bit um, before this in Romans 8. So this is beginning in 18. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know, this is kind of what I had in mind, this verse, that all creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly while we await for adoption, for in hope we are saved. So the idea here, I think, is um, it's cosmic, in other words. Um, especially the way that, in, in the New Testament, Paul thinks about God's redemption, God's reconciliation. The whole creation is subject to sin and death, and the whole creation will be restored. Yeah. So when we talk about, yeah, break the dominion of the world, what we're talking about is that the, uh, the grip that sin has on God's good creation be, right, conquered, right? Uh, uh, that it would be loosened, that God's world be restored. Same with the flesh. This is not like synonymous with the body, right? Uh, flesh, sarks, this is uh, the, the fallenness of our kind of carnal or corporal uh, nature, right? Our bodies are good, but they're fallen, right? And we experience this and the uh, disordering of our desires, right? And the inability uh, for us to have um, kind of mastery over our appetites, right? In all of these ways, we, this is the flesh manifesting, right? And we pray for God to break the dominion of the flesh over our bodies, over ourselves, right? And then finally, the devil, right? The embodiment of that which is opposed to God and God's justice. And then there's not just a kind of um, negation of uh, that which is opposed to God and God's justice and God's rule, but also a realization of his justice. First, right, in his church and his people, the kind of sacrament of the kingdom of God, and then also the extension of his kingdom by his grace through the whole world, that the whole creation would be realized um, as the presence of God. So that's the kind of cosmic vision, but then there's also this personal dimension too in the next question, how do you do God's will? I can walk in God's will by loving him and my neighbor and by taking my part in the church's mission to extend his kingdom in the world. Right? So one place that God's will is like pretty clearly kind of revealed in the Old Testament would be in God's law, right? in particular the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, which is then summarized in Jesus' own teaching with this twofold love command, love of God and love of neighbor, right? Now, this is his summary of the law of God's will, right? So again, if you need the kind of like shorthand way of thinking, what is God's will? Um, actually kind of simple in a, in a sense. And also because it's so simple, uh, very difficult, right? It's to love God and love my neighbor, right? This is how we do God's will. Maybe I'll say here. Um, so God's will is that 
all of creation um, realizes or reaches its telos, its purpose, its end, right? Which is what? It's to be in friendship with God and conform to the likeness of Christ. That's what God wills, right? And that end, that telos, can be realized in any number of ways in this world, right? So there is nothing actually. So we might say that's kind of the, that's the kind of like necessary uh, way of realizing our purpose, our end, our goal, right? Is to worship God, to be friends with God, and be conformed with the likeness of Christ. There are any number of other goods in this world that are good and often like for the most part and in most circumstances, but not absolutely. So there's not anything in this world that we have to say by necessity realize in order to realize that end of friendship with God. I mean, think of some of the most basic kind of goods of this world, life itself, the preservation of life, right? We, we take this for the most part to be a kind of thing we should always will, right? It's never, in fact, it's a great evil to deprive something of life unjustly, right? Um, we take it as like a given good, the preservation of life. But even this, right, we don't actually need to realize God's will, the martyrs as the case in point, right? That actually the preservation of their life actually would inhibit the manifestation of God's will. And actually we can apply this to anything, right? Um, uh, career or marriage, like any of these could be ways of realizing God's will, but not doesn't necessarily mean this, right? And what all this means is that there is this kind of one absolute um, realization of God's will, which is for us to become friends with God, to participate in the Trinity, be conformed to the likeness of his Son. That's the one necessary thing. Everything else is relatively contingent, right? Um, we often should pursue certain goods, certain courses of our life, um, but it's never kind of a necessity to do so, right? I take this to be um, God's way of giving creatures agency and freedom in the world, right? This is what often classically we mean when we distinguish humans from other animals is that we have the capacity for deliberation, right? We have certain, a certain good that we're trying to realize and thus the capacity to decide between many different ways to realize that good and any number of courses of action, Right? God grants us the dignity of that agency, of that freedom to realize God's will in particular instances right? by use of our freedom. Right? Now, that freedom has to be informed uh, by conscience, by the Holy Spirit, and most importantly, probably, by the Spirit's working virtue in us. Right? Um, but it's just to say that the will of God can't be laid out in a checklist. Right? Um, it's realized in us by the formation of our character, right? So that our, our desire uh, for our lives aligns with God's desire. Okay, let's, let's move on a little bit. I'll say a little bit more about this. But why do you pray on earth as it is in heaven? In heaven, God's name is perfectly hallowed and his will is perfectly obeyed and fulfilled. I pray for his kingdom to be established fully and his will to be accomplished on earth, that his name may be perfectly hallowed in all creation. So now we're kind of 
tying this idea of the divine will back to that first petition of the hallowing of God's name, right? That God be praised, glorified, right? This is actually the kingdom of God, right? That God's reign, that God's uh, worship be realized. So we mean this in the sense of when we, when we speak about God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven, we're talking about what is true of the place that God dwells, right, where he's worshiped by his angels and saints in heaven, right, be also true on the earth, right? And also, in this sense too, uh, that what is true of the end of things, right, the, the redemption of all things, actually slowly is becoming true right now, right? It's a kind of future breaking into the present, right? Thy will be done here and now as it will be in the future, right, on earth as it is in heaven, Right, that the fullness of God's kingdom began even now in this world. Okay, let me pause because you know, I've, I've tried to kind of get a little bit at um, what it means to think about God's will and our desiring God's will and praying for God's will be done. And I think what I just want to kind of convey is something like this, that we shouldn't think about God's will as a mysterious, scary thing that we're always desperately trying to kind of like get God to show us, right? Um, what God does is reveal his will, right, in the person of Jesus, in the scriptures, and then grant us the dignity of, of freedom, right, to realize his will in our lives. And this could be in any number of ways, right? And we need not worry that our lives will be wasted because we can't seem to get 100% certainty about what you know, God clearly wants for our lives. Sometimes what God wants to do is for us to make a decision informed by our desires, skills, and gifts and the needs of his church. And that's, that's God's will, right? It may never come in a kind of like voice from heaven that says, I want you to do this, right? In fact, it often doesn't come that way. So if we don't ever get that kind of or, or if it, we rarely get that kind of clear kind of divine appointment for something, like the Apostle Paul, you know, Jesus appearing to him and giving him a very clear kind of instructions for how to carry out the divine will. If that's not the case most of the time, how do we discern God's will? Well, I think one of the most helpful ways is to think about it like this. I, I think maybe I got this from Father Lee, actually, who, who said, often God's will can be discerned at the intersection of my desires, you know, informed by the, by the Holy Spirit and God's church, right? Not just kind of my arbitrary desires, but what I, what I like, am passionate about, my passions and desires, my skills and gifts. So not just what I like to do and want to do, but what I'm actually kind of built to do and the needs of God's people, right? So kind of my desires, passions, my gifts and skills, I think of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the needs of God's church, right? And when you kind of are discerning how those three intersect, you're often going to be discerning what God's will for your life might be. Now, that's not a sure and certain kind of way of, of figuring out what God's kind of plan for your life is, but it, it's a pretty good way of thinking about it. And um, it's, it's a way that is, uh, thinks about God's will and our will um, when, when things are right, as not being in competition, but they should be in a kind of alignment, right? When our desires are kind of 
uh, formed and made holy, right? They actually come into a kind of alignment with God's, right? So part of seeking God's will then is this deep kind of discernment and prayer coming to love the thing that's, that God loves, right? Um, but I think at the end of the day, often um, we've, we spend almost too much time praying for God's will to be revealed to us when God might be saying, right, I want you to do what you're skilled and love to do, right, and what the needs of God's church is. It's right there in front of you, right? That's my will for you to realize my kingdom and my glory in this world, right? I have, I have no secrets for you, right? It's right there in front of you, right? Now, it's not to say that God doesn't often have special uh, vocations for us, right, that we may need to spend lots of time discerning, but I would say more often than not, God's will for our lives is kind of more or less laid out for us. We're just too scared to kind of commit to it, right? Or we don't want it, right? And so we say, I'm going to keep praying for God's other will for my life, right? The one that isn't this one, right? Uh, and so we kind of like turn away from that one, right? And say, no, there must be something else that God has for me. Any question, questions on this? I mean, it's, uh, the will of God is, is, a, is a complicated topic, but um, I hope this is somewhat helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is absolutely the case. And it's, let me give like two instances. One in which the discernment of the Christian community is very much active and one in which it is like almost wholly absent. So um, the positive example I have in mind in which discerning God's will for my life involves almost always a very intense uh, communal discernment with God's people is discerning ordination. So, uh, when I was, um, you know, in the process of discerning ordination and pursuing the process of ordination, what I came to realize and be quite liberated by was that I did not have to uh, have anxiety uh, about whether or not God was kind of like calling me to ministry in my innermost being, right? I mean, it is the case that God often will will kind of give us a conviction, right, or a call. But oftentimes, right, we can kind of like self-deceive, you know, uh, deceive ourselves about the nature of that, or we can't quite figure it out what God is really has on our hearts, right? It becomes very difficult, especially for some people, especially myself, to do that kind of internal investigation of like, what is God speaking to me? But what God will often do is just inform the church, this is my will for your life, right? And thank God that that was the case because I don't know that I ever would have been ordained as a priest if it was just me trying to figure out what God wanted for me. Actually, I probably wouldn't have. I would have been too overcome by my own doubts, my own uh, anxieties. But luckily, I had a whole group of people that would meet with me once a month for like a year and to figure out and you know whether or not I was called to ministry and then to affirm at the end of it and, you know, a nearly certain conviction, this is what God's calling you to, right? That's the positive one. One negative one, and then uh, I'll, I'll uh, uh, move on, but one negative one 
where often we do not have any sort of communal discernment is marriage, right? I mean, think about the anxiety that people go through about whether or not I should marry this person, right? It is agonizing for a lot of people because it's so isolated and divorced from any sort of meaningful uh, discernment with God's church. Often people will talk to their friends about it or their family, but the idea of, say, like having a conversation with um, wise people in the church It just rarely happens, but I think it should be happening all the time that we discern collectively who we're we're all getting married to, right? And it shouldn't just be a matter left to our individual kind of consciences, but right, um, we want to all be involved, right, in in what God might be doing in the lives of his people. So I think, yeah, communal discernment is absolutely key. That's how the Holy Spirit works. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah, humility is key. And actually, when someone seems certain of what God might be calling them to, especially when it's related to ministry, this is actually grounds for a certain amount of suspicion, right? Uh, I was actually just talking to Bishop Ackerman about this uh, the other day, where he, he mentioned, you know, I think it was... Um, you know, uh, uh, back in the day, uh, uh, someone who like really uh, had this desire to be a bishop and felt like this is what God really wanted for him. And he said, I, I'm pretty sure that you're not called to be a bishop if that's the case. One sign that someone is called to be a bishop is that they do not want to be bishop, right? And it's that humility that I could never serve God's people in this way. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not holy. I'm not skilled. Okay, that's exactly the kind of person that God wants, Right. So that kind of humility, I think, is, is really key. And pride is actually going inhibit, to inhibit it. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Because mm-hmm. often we we think about something like spiritual gifts, like the, the gifts that God gives us as these kind of like, you know, yeah, you figure out I'm a really good... Um, with hosp- I'm really good with hospitality. This is my spiritual gift. You discern this at age 25, and you, you know, think, well, my whole life, this is my spiritual gift. This is the way I'm going to exercise uh, my ministry in the church. But actually, it does not seem clear from Scripture that that's the way that the church thinks about spiritual gifts, right? They're not permanent qualities or skills that we have. They're actually gifts, and God might give more, right? He, he might call you in a different way. Uh, to be exercising ministry, right? Um, so, so the idea of living into God's will might change over time. Same with vocation, right? God might have this kind of vocational call in our lives, but it rarely is that a permanent thing through our whole lives. Often vocations kind of change. And so God's discerning kind of like how God's spirit might be kind of leading us into God's will right? It is just that. It's a discernment through our whole lives. It's not as if once we figure out the answer, we're kind of set for our whole lives. Yeah. It's a constant discernment with God's people. Yeah. Yeah. I think anyone who's, who's aging is going to find this to be, to be true. Yeah. Good. Any other comments, questions on God's will?
I think this is, this is good. Um, so God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's go to the fourth petition. Um, question 188, what is the fourth petition? The fourth petition is, give us this day our daily bread. So having prayed first for God's glory, kingdom, and will, what do you now pray? I pray for my needs and those of my brothers and sisters for daily provision, pardon for sins, and protection from evil. This is an important order in the Lord's Prayer in terms of the petitions. The first and primary petitions regard God. And then, once we've prayed for God's name to be hallowed, his kingdom to come, his will to be done, then we can come to pray for our own needs. And this is not, ju- this is not because, um, you know, kind of like God is more important than us, though obviously that's the case. <laughs> it's actually, it's, it's about how we pray. So we actually are not really able to discern what our needs are apart from our worship of God, right? And praying for and discerning the realization of God's kingdom in this world. So there's something, we might say, pedagogical about praying for God's name to be hallowed, his kingdom and will to be done, right? It kind of informs and teaches us what we actually need, right? And often when kind of instructed by coming to realize what it might mean for God's name to be hallowed, for his kingdom to come, um, what we thought we need might go under a kind of radical revision. We actually might not need as much as we thought, or we might need very different things than we thought we needed. So that's kind of the logic here, right? We pray first that God's will be done before our wills be done, right? Um, and, and what do we pray then after praying for these things? We pray for needs, for provision, for pardon, for sins, for protection from evil. So in other words, uh, the rest of the petitions that follow in the Lord's prayer follow after uh, having first prayed uh, for God's glory and kingdom and will to be done. Okay, so let's talk about though this particular expression, daily bread. So 190, what does our daily bread mean? So daily bread includes all that we need for our bodily provision and spiritual nourishment. Okay, so uh, from early on, I mentioned that, you know, one of the things that I I really love and has been kind of an important uh, resource for me are some of the earliest Christian commentaries on the Lord's Prayer. And what you find in those commentaries, when we get to this petition about our daily bread, is they almost always think first and foremost of bread, not in kind of purely material terms, but in Eucharistic terms. Um, and it has to do actually with the, the Greek translation of this phrase, our daily bread, which I'm trying to remember now. Do you remember, Alex? Epiousios. Epiousios. So, ousios coming from something like nature or being, Epi meaning, uh, was it super maybe in this? So upon. So the way it's often translated, if I remember right, by some of the fathers, it's like super substantial bread. Is that right? Super. So we pray for our super substantial bread. That's a totally different way of thinking about the Lord's Prayer, isn't it, than our daily bread? Because often we think about like, God, give us this, the food that we need to get through this day. 
which for us in you know, kind of the modern West is kind of a joke, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, do we really need to pray for our food? I mean, in a sense, yes, but for most of us, it's not a question that we're going to eat today. That's not the case for most of history, right? This was a very real prayer for daily bread. But even for those for, in history for whom it was not given that they would have access to bread each day, first and foremost, before praying for literal bread, they would pray for super substantial bread, or maybe say spiritual bread, right? First in the sense of the kind of life-giving nourishment that God gives us in the Eucharist, right? Where he gives us himself, right? Spiritual bread. But then also maybe think about the way that bread is talked about in the New Testament and the Gospels, right? In terms of a kind of a, a metaphor for the word of God that gives life, Right? Um, so first and foremost, when we pray for daily bread, this is what we pray for. It's praying for grace, actually, right? Praying for the grace of the Eucharist, right? For the grace of the nourishment of God's word. Because after all, that's what we need, right? Most deeply. And then in light of this, we also pray for our very material needs. Not just food, but for those kind of basic necessities. I think this is good, actually, for us to pray for even though for most of us, getting food is not much of a problem, for a couple of reasons, I think it's good for us to, to pray this. One, just the, re, the, the remembrance that actually much of our kind of global population does not have the access to food that we do, right? It's important that we're praying for our daily bread, not for my daily bread, right? Uh, I can usually get as much bread as I want, right? Uh, but I'm not praying for my bread. I'm praying for the bread of our collective humanity, really, right? And so you might, in one sense, think about this prayer as being a prayer for um, the end of global poverty, right? That God would provide for the material needs of those who uh, live without them, right? Praying for our daily bread. So I think that's, in, in one sense, in which it's important for us to pray this, to kind of pray in solidarity, right, with all of humanity, but then also, even for us, I think it's important to remember, though it seems that we have such easy access to food, right, um, we don't just kind of get it by right. We're actually in a kind of dependence on others and on God for everything we eat, so in a very literal way, right, um, we don't, for the most part, make the food that we eat. We're dependent on others, those who harvest, produce it, right? But then ultimately on God, right, who sends rain and sun, who allows um, things to grow, life to flourish, right? So uh, in this sense, we're, we're almost kind of, um, we're praying that God's providential care of the creation continue, right? Okay, so I think there's a lot actually packed into praying for our daily bread. So first and foremost, praying for uh, the spiritual bread that we desperately need for our souls to live, right? In the Eucharist and God's word. Second, for the kind of provision of basic needs for ourselves and others, especially those who lack them. And third, that God continue to care for his creation in a way that allows us... <laughs> in spite of our kind of like ceaseless attempts to destroy that creation, it seems, nevertheless to preserve it, right? To continue bringing forth food and life in it. 
Okay, 191, why should you pray for daily bread? God calls me to trust him for the needs of each day, to be concerned for the needs of others, to be content with what I have, and to grow in gratitude for his provision. So this is kind of, I guess I kind of jumped the gun a little bit, right? But this is really what praying for our daily bread is all about, right? It's to realize our needs, the needs of others, to come to a discernment of what we actually need to live, which often is coming, I think, for a lot of us into a realization of what we don't need. In fact, we might even think of Lent in this regard and fasting and giving things up as trying to discern in a deep sense what we actually need, what we need to flourish, to be happy. And skipping a meal or giving something up, right? All of this is just, it's a way of of telling ourselves and reminding ourselves, I don't need this to be happy or to be fulfilled, right? All I need is God, right? So it's a kind of radical dependence on God for um, our flourishing. Okay, 192, why does God give you daily bread? God gives me daily bread because he is a good and loving father who gives good things to all his children, sustains us in life, and desires that we grow daily in his grace. It's an interesting question. Why does God give you daily bread? Uh, I appreciate that the catechism asked this question um, because it, it causes us not to presume that God uh, should have to care for us. In fact, um, we take this for granted because uh, the God that we worship, who's revealed in Scripture in Jesus, is so clearly a God for us, right, who tends to the needs of his children. But that was not something that was obvious for a lot of ancient people, right, especially, say, in the ancient Near Eastern world. If you looked around at the other gods, it was not clear that they cared for you. (laughs) In fact, quite the opposite, Right? Um, Think about one creation story in the ancient Near East, the Enuma Elish. Why are humans created in this Babylonian creation story? To be slaves of the gods, right? The gods do not care about you, right? You do their work, right? The idea of a caring God, right, uh, is a a really kind of miraculous revelation of Scripture and, and Jesus Christ, that God cares for us and wants us actually to flourish, both in just kind of like our ordinary lives, but certainly uh, the flourishing of our souls in relationship to him. Okay, so that's the fourth petition. Kind of went through that one a little bit quick. So any questions about that or, or thoughts or other kind of reflections or things that maybe we didn't hit upon? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And that God actually, he, he desires for our bodies to live and to flourish, right? It's not as if kind of these are prisons for our souls and the, the goal is for God, you know, that God wants to actually get us out of them so that we can live kind of in this ethereal state with him. No, God created the body. He desires us flourishing and he gives us what we need for that to happen, right? And it's good for us to remember that, yeah, we're, we're not spirits, right? We're embodied cells. And we need not just super substantial bread, but we actually just need literal bread too. Um, and in a sense, every provision of our kind of just bodily material needs, whether it be bread uh, or anything else, um, should be a kind of reminder of God's provision also spiritually, right? Those two are kind of like in a, they echo each other, right? When we sit down and have a loaf of bread for dinner, right, we should think about the Eucharist. And when we come to the Eucharist, right, uh, we should note, right, that the way that God gives us grace is through material things, right? Um, so God's provision for ourselves is not something separate from uh, the material creation and our material and bodily provision. I think that's exactly right. Any other thoughts on, on bread? I'm kind of getting hungry now. Uh, okay. Well, um, I think actually rather than jump into the next petition, we have, we have like five minutes left, but uh, I don't want to kind of try to start getting through this next one because it's a little bit complicated and because the fifth and sixth petition really, or the two parts of the fifth petition really go together. So I'm going to kind of end it here. Uh, next week, I believe uh, Alex Fogelman is going to be teaching. I'm going to be out of town. So he's going to walk us through uh, this forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The petition that I think is probably the most difficult, and so I'll be happy to peace out and let Alex take it from there. Um, so Alex will, will take a catechesis next week, and then following the following week, Paul Guttaker, who's the director of the Brazos Fellows Program, is going to um, continue catechesis, um, and then I'll be back the following week. So that's the kind of plan for the next couple of weeks. Okay, we'll end it there, and we'll begin worship in just a, a little bit. <laughs>